Q&A is almost the complete opposite. I am very, I literally have all my notes I script out uh, because I want to be thoughtful and, and uh, I know that every word counts and Q&A is, is just the opposite of that. And part of that's thrilling, but it also leaves the door open for things. And uh, so anyway, going through that, I just uh, want to give you guys the freedom to approach me if there's anything there. I uh, can't believe we're at the end of 2017. It's, uh, we're like three weeks from the end of the year. It is flown by. And uh, as a church, we've chosen to go through the book of Ruth to close out our year. And um, our family missed church last week, so we missed Andrew's teaching. I got a chance to listen to it on, uh, on our, uh, listen to the recording of it. And uh, we were down in Gainesville visiting Josiah, who, for those of you here early, got a chance to hear him and his acapella group sing, which is really, really cool. And uh, yeah, I appreciate how Andrew did such a great job of laying a foundation for the book of Ruth. For those of you who weren't here last week, the book of Ruth takes place about uh, over 3,000 years ago, and in a day when there was no king in Israel, and the people of Israel had this bad habit of doing whatever they wanted. And so they kept going through the book of Judges is this constant cycle of, of God's people being, doing what they wanted, uh, getting involved in sin, worshiping other gods, and then being conquered by another nation, taken into captivity, God allowing that to happen. God's people trapped in captivity, crying out to God for help, and then God sending a judge to deliver them. They're delivered, they're set free, they worship God, things are well, until they come back to this place where they begin sinning again. And of course, this is all taking over the place over, over hundreds of years, but it's, it's just this cycle that goes through and cycles through over and over and over again. And it is into this period of time that the book of Ruth is written to provide God's people with inspiration, to give them a picture of God's redemption, and to reveal the, this, the sense of what faithfulness and commitment is supposed to look like, because that's what God wants from his people. And so into that context, the story of Ruth is written. So with that, we'll jump into chapter 2, verse 1. Now there is a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. So if you missed last week, Elimelech is Naomi's husband. And Elimelech was married to Naomi, and they had two sons who grew up to be adults. And Elimelech dies as does the two sons. And so Naomi is left alone except for two daughters-in-law, the two women who married her two sons. And their names are Orpah and Ruth. And as you can imagine, if you've lost your husband, you've lost your two sons, Naomi is a depressed and broken woman. And she determines they've been in Moab. They left Israel to go to Moab for job opportunities, and now she decides that in her period of grief, she's going to return home. And so she frees her two daughters-in-law and says, hey, I know that you're not from Israel. Feel free to go home. Orpah does. She returns to her homeland, to her people, to her family. But Ruth determines to follow Naomi wherever she goes. Ruth determines to cling to Naomi and go with her to a foreign land, to a foreign city. And so they go together to the city of Bethlehem. And it's at this point in the story that we're introduced to the man Boaz. 
Boaz is a wealthy man. He's an influential man. Boaz, the name actually means mighty man of strength. And in the Old Testament in particular, but throughout the scriptures, names mean a lot. And so Naomi meant pleasant. And so when she returned to Israel, she says, call me Mara, because I'm not pleasant anymore. I'm bitter. And that's what Mara means. And so um, as she's returning home, she has this depressed, bitter spirit. And we're introduced to Boaz, who's introduced as a mighty man of strength. In verse 2, it says, One day Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. Naomi replied, All right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. So it's not very clear. So Naomi and Ruth have now traveled to Bethlehem, Naomi's hometown. She's met some of her neighbors and the people who remember her, and they come back and they're like, Naomi, it's so good to have you back. And she's like, don't talk to me. I'm bitter. Call me Mara. You know, and that's, that's it. So we don't know how long she's been there, but they're poor. They don't have very much, and Ruth realizes they need to eat, and Naomi is in this depressive, closed, shut-down state. And so Ruth offers to go and to uh, go into the fields to pick up, to pick up leftover grain. This is a... Uh, this is an interesting situation, right? Naomi has some wealthy relatives. Among them is, is this man, Boaz, but she doesn't seek them out. She doesn't want to ask for help. And so Ruth is taking it upon herself to go. And this process of going into the fields to pick up leftover grain so that you can feed yourself, this is an interesting practice that most of us aren't familiar with. It's a practice called gleaning. And gleaning uh, most of you isn't, aren't, aren't familiar with what gleaning is, but it's a practice that was established by God in the Old Testament, starting in the book of Exodus. But in the book of Deuteronomy, it's probably the best idea of what gleaning is. So I'm going to read so you understand what this practice is. This is going to be vital. This is one of the themes woven into this chapter. Deuteronomy 24, starting in verse 19. When you're harvesting your crops and forget to bring in a bundle of grain from the field, don't go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigners, orphans, and widows. Actually, in the book of Exodus, it goes beyond this. It's talking about as you're plowing, that leave the corners and leave the edges unplowed so that the poor, the foreigners, and the poor, and the widows and orphans can come in and take some of the leftover wheat or, or crop. Then the Lord will bless you in all that you do. When you beat the olives from your olive trees, don't go over the boughs twice. Leave the remaining olives for the foreigners, orphans, and widows. When you gather the grapes in your vineyard, don't glean the vines after they're picked. Leave the remaining grapes for the foreigners, orphans, and widows. Remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. That is why I'm giving you this command. So the essence of gleaning is if you own the land, you're trying to get the produce from the land. And what God is saying is that when you go through it, you're not going in to pick up every tiny little piece of grain, olive, or grape that you possibly can. Go through it once, and whatever is left, you leave for those who are in need to come and pick through. That's the idea of gleaning. So gleaning is basically God's social welfare system. So yes, God could very well be a Democrat, right? This practice is written into the Jewish law for the well-off, so that they would teach the well-off how to practice charity and for the poor to have an opportunity to have their needs met. 
for the poor and less fortunate to be fed. Today, we don't use the term gleaning because uh, that's an Old Testament word. For us, that same idea can probably, the, a similar idea would be dumpster diving. That's kind of what we would call it. And you can laugh, you can do what you want, but I know you do it. So we may not literally jump into a dumpster, but whenever we're passing by a place, we see someone leaving something out in the front of their house and you want to go pick it up, that's, that's the same idea, right? That those of us who have extra things that we don't necessarily need, we would set out so that those who might need it or might want it can come by and pick it up. Our, our family has two couches, one in our patio, one in our bedroom that we dumpster-dived and picked up, and we've got two tables in our garage that are there as well. So that's kind of the idea. So this idea is going to come up again, so we're going to revisit it as we go through these passages, but I want to be clear the idea of gleaning, so that we all understand, is not simply about the well-off giving away the extra that they have. It's beyond that, right? The, the principle of gleaning is that we shouldn't scrape and scratch for every penny of profit that we can possibly squeeze out of what God has given to us. Instead, if we have extra, we are to offer it to the poor Offer it to the less fortunate. That's the idea of gleaning. So it doesn't have to do with crops. It has to do more with our heart and our spirit, that we're not seeking to squeeze out every little bit of what we got, but whatever we have that's extra, whatever we have above and beyond our need, we offer to those who are less fortunate. And I love being part of a church that holds that as a value. And we've seen it in so many of you guys. I've seen guys giving away food and clothes and cars. And, and uh, shoot, we have our own awakened swap site. So, I mean, that's, I, th- I love that principle being played out. It's a practice many of you already engaged in. Simply want to share that the biblical word for that idea is gleaning. And that is what Ruth is doing, going through Boaz's field, picking up the extras in order to feed her and Naomi. Verse 3 uh, of Ruth. As it happened, and as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. So I know we're only on verse three. I promise we're going to pick up the pace quite a bit from here. We're not going to go this slowly, but I wanted you to catch something in this passage, right? As it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz. I just wanted you to see, that's a very interesting line. That's a very interesting phrase, right? And as it happened, that's not the terminology we would use. So last week, Andrew shared this idea that the book of Ruth is a book where God is more in the background, and you have to look a bit more carefully to see his invisible hand at work. And this is a great example of that. As it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz. We don't use these words. We would use a word like, coincidentally, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz. Or, fortunately, as she was out looking for a field, she happened to find the one that Boaz was. Or, luckily, she happened upon a field where Boaz owned, right? These are the words that we would use. But I want to challenge this idea. Because I want you to think, and tell me if you know, how many times the word coincidentally, fortunately, or luckily shows up in the Bible? Anyone have a guess? Yeah, zero. Zero. Coincidentally, 
fortunately, luckily, these words that we use all the time in our vernacular to explain situations just like this, right? Oh my goodness, that just worked out. Fortunately, that's how it worked out. Luckily, I was in this situation where that does not show, that idea does not show up in the scriptures. That is not how God sees it, right? What does God teach? God teaches that everything has a purpose. Even if we don't understand it, God has a purpose and plan. And that's how God works. And so when things work out for someone in the Bible, it's not because of fortune, it's not because of coincidence, it's not because of luck. Instead, the idea that the Bible communicates when these things happen is another word that God uses over 110 times in the Scriptures, both in the Old and New Testament, and that word is favor, right? God shows favor. God showed favor to Noah. God showed favor to Abraham. God showed favor to Moses. God showed favor to Gideon, Samuel, and David. God showed favor to Jesus. When you read in Luke chapter 2, right, it says that Jesus found favor before God and men. That is the idea that God uses to communicate this. And you're going to see that God shows favor to Ruth. In fact, that word favor is found three times in chapter 2 alone. So keep an eye out for them. Verse 4, while she was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. So she's in the field now, and she's working the field, right? And so Boaz comes in from Bethlehem and greets his harvesters. The Lord be with you, he said. The Lord bless you, his harvesters replied. That's a great way to come into work, by the way, right? If you're a boss, come in, say, the Lord greets you, right? And everybody responds with a blessing in return. And the nice part is it shows something about Boaz's character, that his workers respect him, they appreciate him, and he treats them with love and respect, right? That's the, that's the type of person who would come in to work in a day and offer his people a blessing, then Boaz, starting in verse 5, then Boaz asked his foreman, who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? And the foreman replied, she is the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters, and she has been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes rest in the shelter. So you're getting a bit of the story where Ruth comes in, and she doesn't just start picking at the fields, which she has a right to do under the Jewish law. But she asks for permission. Can I come in? Would you allow me to come behind and glean from your harvest? Boaz went over and said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other fields. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they are harvesting and then follow them. I've warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you are thirsty... Help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. When we read this passage, we don't know what it is that first draws Boaz's eye to Ruth. It could have been a number of things. It could have been that he just knows who tends to come out to his fields to glean. And he just said, I don't recognize that, that woman out there. That could totally have been what caught his eye. He could have found Ruth attractive. You know, even though she had her hair up and she had a bit of dirt on her face, it was kind of grimy, he might have said, you know, wow, there's a cute one over there. That's another possibility too, right? So we don't know what caught his eye, but we do know what grabs his attention, right? And what grabs his attention is when his worker says, oh, she's the one that you probably heard of 
that she came back with Naomi. She's a foreigner, and she came here and asked permission to glean from our fields. And I want you to note in that that whatever it was that caught his eye, the reason why Boaz went and spoke with her, spoke with Ruth, is because of her story and because of her character. Verse 10, Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness, she asked. I'm only a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz replied, but I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I've heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. I hope I continue to please you, sir, she replied. You have comforted me by speaking so kindly to you, to me, even though I am not one of your workers. So you see what attracted Boaz's attention, right? What caused him to go out of his way as the owner of this land and overseeing his employees and taking a moment away from his job, away from his work, to go to this foreigner and offer kindness to her. I've heard your story. I heard what you did for Naomi. He doesn't reveal that he's a relative. He just says, I heard about your story. I heard about what you've done. And that pleased me. And so I'm choosing to show you favor. I'm choosing to show you kindness. Boaz, if you don't know in the story, he's a bit of an older man. He is single, which seems to be a bit unusual in his time, right? Because here's Boaz, an owner who has great wealth, a man of great integrity, a man who is well-liked and well-respected, and yet he is single. He's a man of strength. He's the type of guy, though, that on paper any woman would want to marry, and yet he is still single. We don't know why. Again, the Bible doesn't tell us. Maybe he's got this horn on his head that's very unappealing, a big zit on his face. That could totally be. Maybe he's just really, really picky, That could also be a possibility. And it's also a possibility that Boaz is a widower, that he was married and his wife died and he is now left alone. There's a number of reasons why he could have been single, but the reality is coincidentally, luckily, fortunately, he was, right? So single for a reason. And so here's this single man who approaches this single woman to talk with her and He's not bothered at all. Now, he's an Israelite, and again, if you don't have a familiarity with the Old Testament, they're very nationalistic. He doesn't care that she's a foreigner. He doesn't care that she's a widow and that she's been married before. These are not things that are a deterrent towards him, right? Instead, he's impressed with her story. He's impressed with the type of woman that she is, the type of woman that would remain loyal to her mother-in-law, even when there was no need to be loyal to her. And so he shows her kindness. So I just want to say this, right? Single ladies, if you're in the room, if you want to attract a man like Boaz, begin with the inside out. Ruth is a woman of character. The Bible doesn't tell us anything about what she looks like, and it certainly doesn't indicate in any way, shape, or form that she went and made herself up and made herself look nice to catch Boaz's eye. That is not how Ruth worked. She was a woman of character. She served without any expectation for return, and she had a grateful spirit, right? Men, right? You will never regret 
taking the time to wait for the right woman. Boaz is an older man, whatever it is, and you'll find out. Maybe I'm giving away the story that Boaz and Ruth end up getting together. But it's nice to be able to know that this romance works on the front end, right? Cultivate a reputation for integrity. Cultivate a reputation for kindness. And when you do, you will find that people are drawn to your kindness, drawn to your integrity, drawn to your character. Do not fail in these areas, right? Because you'll find that not only are people drawn to you, they're willing to follow and serve alongside you. Verse 14. Now Boaz said to her at mealtime, come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed parched grain to her. And as she ate, she was satisfied and kept some back. So after Boaz has this conversation with her, Ruth goes back to work. And she's working in the fields. And then lunchtime comes around. And Boaz says, hey, Ruth, why don't you come on over here and why don't you eat with us? Again, really unusual that he would go out of his way to have a gleaner, a poor person, to come and join his staff, his team, his fellow workers to eat some roasted grain. And so, uh, so what has Boaz done, right? He's bought her a meal. And he invites her to get to know her in a group setting. That's a pretty good way to start off a first date. So here you go. Come on in. I get you a meal. And we're amongst a group of people that are all pretty safe. And then I want you to notice something that's really interesting about what Ruth did, right? It says that when they passed this grain to her, this cooked grain, she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. That's a really interesting passage. And again, I don't know how many of you guys have gone through the book of Ruth and you read. This is just kind of how, as I'm reading through the book and I'm analyzing and bringing it, just kind of going verse by verse and saying, what are the things that cause you to say, hmm, right? And this is one of those. Ruth eats until she's satisfied. Not necessarily until she's full or stuffed, but she could have, right? She's hungry. She's worked an entire morning, right? We don't know if she got breakfast or not. And here she is. She didn't stuff herself. She didn't fill herself. She ate until she was satisfied. And then what did she do? She kept some back. I thought that was really interesting because, again, we're, we're, the author is coming back on this idea of gleaning, right? What was gleaning again? That you take what you need and then anything extra you set aside to give to those who are less fortunate. And as you can see, Naomi chooses to practice. Even though she's the one in need, she's the poor one, when she is given much, she still has that attitude and spirit of generosity in her life. Verse 15 and 16. When Ruth went back to work again, Boaz ordered his young man or young men, let her gather grain right among the sheaves without stopping her and pull out some heads of barley from the bundles and drop them on purpose for her. Let her pick them up and don't give her a hard time. So if you're not familiar with the practice of gleaning, this might sound really strange, right? Because what Boaz is telling his young men to do is, hey, look, you got work to do. This is our livelihood that you're collecting these sheaves of grain. But you know what? Guys, as you're going about doing that, as you're pulling them in, if you could just pull a couple out and just kind of drop them on the ground so that she can pick them. Because that's, that's how the, the poor and unfortunate can come and, and realize that, hey, this is for me, right? If they're on the ground and not bound up in a sheave. So he's like, pull some out. You know what? I want you to go beyond that, not just not going back and, and, and leaving a couple of things for Ruth. I actually want you to do some of the work and pull some of them down yourselves 
and then just drop them behind you so Ruth can come by and pick them up, right? That is what Boaz is doing. And if you're not familiar with this practice of gleaning, you might be like, well, I don't understand why Boaz is going out of his way to do this. It's more than just being a kind person. Gleaning was not a safe practice in that time. So if you can imagine, these owners have land, right? Large tracts of land. And so harvesting season is a long season. It's a season and not a day's work because we don't have the ability to reap all the parts of our land in a single day, in a single or a couple of days, or even a week. It takes many weeks for this to be accomplished. So there's a lot of land out there. And so because the practice of gleaning means that anyone who has need can come and pick up the leftover pieces, you, that means you could have men, women, poor, disadvantaged, lazy. There's anyone can come out into these fields and pick up what's left over. And so occasionally gleaning could become a bit of a dangerous practice because not all the ones who come to glean are necessarily moral. And so there was stealing that went on, Right? There was fighting that went on. Hey, that was my area. Get out of my area, right? And of course, there's stealing. Hey, someone who's already done the work to beat the grain and they didn't just come in. This type of stuff happened. And even worse, especially if you were a young, single woman out in this broad, vast field that's relatively unprotected. Because why would the owner set aside employees to guard property after it's already been harvested. There's no point. That's not what owners need to do. What the owners are doing by law is to show generosity by leaving the leftovers. They're not putting guards out there to make sure this is done properly. So usually the owner has no vested interest in leaving any of his workers behind. So this is kind of a bit in the wild. And it's even worse if you're a foreign woman because you don't have family out there or friends out there with you who can watch your back. And so the advice that Boaz is giving to Ruth is not, only, is, is not only a kindness, but it's an acknowledgement to the danger of gleaning. You notice multiple times in here, he tells his own workers, his own workers, don't be rough with her. Be kind with her. Watch out for her, right? He tells Ruth, follow behind the other ladies I've hired. He's trying to protect her from harm. He's giving her his favor. Verse 17. So Ruth gathered, there, gathered barley there all day. And when she beat out the grain that evening, it filled an entire basket. She carried it back into town and showed it to her mother-in-law. Ruth also gave her the roasted grain that was left over from her meal. So now you realize why Ruth kept some cooked food back, right? She wanted to be able to share with Naomi. So she's finished her day's work. She's beat out all the grain. And what she's found is she's got about an entire basket full. Uh, Those who study this stuff, not me, but those who study this stuff would say that a basket was equivalent to about six to seven gallons of barley, which if made into bread, converted into bread, would have been enough to feed Naomi and Ruth for about five days. That's how much bread she collected or how much grain she collected. So that's quite a bit of work for a single woman to collect enough to feed her and Naomi for at least five days. Verse 19. Where did you gather all this grain today, Naomi asked. So Naomi is shocked at how much Ruth brings home. 
Where did you gather all this, that grain today? Where did you work? May the Lord bless the one who helped you. So Naomi sees so much collected that her first assumption is there's no way Ruth could possibly have done all of this by herself. Who was it that helped you out? And then Ruth's response, so Ruth told her mother-in-law about the man in whose field she had worked. And she said, the man I work with today is named Boaz. May the Lord bless him, Naomi told her daughter-in-law. He is showing his kindness to us. This is God. God is showing his kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. That man, Boaz, is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. We're going to come back to that one. Then Ruth said, what's more, Boaz even told me to come back and stay with his harvesters until the entire harvest is completed. So I told you, harvest is a season, not just a day activity. And so what Boaz has offered her, he's like, you know what? Feel free to come back. Don't go to the other fields. Don't go to the other. It's not necessarily safe there. Come back here and you can even stay with us until the season is over. Good, Naomi exclaimed. Do as he said, my daughter. Stay with his young women right through the whole harvest. You might be harassed in other fields, but you'll be safe with him. So Ruth worked alongside the women in Boaz's field and gathered grain with them until the end of the barley harvest. Then she continued working with them through the wheat harvest in early summer. And all the while, she lived with her mother-in-law. This is how the chapter closes, and it's really, really interesting. If you contrast the end of Ruth 1 with the end of Ruth 2, you're going to see a dramatic shift in Naomi. Remember where she was at the end of 1, right? That she was depressed, she was embittered, so much so that she says, don't even call me Naomi. Don't even call me by my name anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter. I've been cursed by God. To all of a sudden, in a single day, seeing Ruth coming home with all of this grain, she rejoices. And the only way, and I've, I've been puzzling through this, going through this, like how could someone's attitude and spirit change that quickly? And it just seems weird to me. But then I, I realized that uh, in many ways, it's, if, I, if I think of wives and moms and I think of my wife, right? My wife, when she opens up the refrigerator and it is full, packed to the gills worth of food, she's like, yes, I feel good, right? I feel satisfied. I feel rich, when our refrigerator is full. And I think that's what Naomi is experiencing here. She sees this basket full of food that's enough to feed them for days, and she's like, wow. And there's this satisfaction that comes and says, we're rich. Even though you're not really rich, you know, but that's how the feeling is. It's like, we're rich, we're blessed. That's the first reaction she has when she sees Ruth coming in with this great basket. We're blessed. I had almost given up on feeling blessed. I thought I was under a curse. And to see this, her hope is renewed. Her joy is restored. And she's curious, and she says, what happened, Ruth? Tell me the story. And when she hears the story of how God has worked, because she doesn't believe in coincidentally, fortunately, and luckily, and she realizes that God sent you to my relative's field, my rich relative, and it's there that you are protected, that you are provided for, and how God has shown his sweetness to me as well. And she receives it, and it transforms her. 
And it actually does even more than that because Naomi is not only moving from depressed and embittered to rejoicing and hopeful, she's now a plotter. And that's a plotter, a planner. What is that called when you plan, when you're a plotter? Like, oh my goodness, like a Hannibal. Anyway, never mind. I had a term in my head and I just totally lost it. So, but anyway, so he's now a plotter, right? And she's like, you know what, Ruth? You might not realize this, but not only is he a close relative, he is one of our family redeemers. And I'll share a bit more about what that means next week when we go through chapter three. But a plan is starting to form in the mind of Naomi. She's starting to see what God might be doing here. And she is developing this idea that's going to not only restore her, but restore her family. And we will come to that next week because that realization gives her joy and gives her hope. So that's Ruth chapter 2. I hope you guys are reading through these passages alongside us. And um, I know we didn't make this Q&A series, but I do feel like you guys being able to interact with the text as we go through it is what's going to be able to bring this to life. So let me close out in a word of prayer, and then we'll have Larry close out our service. And, you know, for all those times that we kept you a bit late in church, we'll let you go a little bit early today. So, and there's some neat stuff that we're doing after church. So, Lord, thank you so much for this morning and for this time, for the opportunity to come into your presence, to know you as God who loves us, God who cherishes us, God who is at work purposefully and not coincidentally, fortunately, or luckily, God. But everything that you do has a plan and purpose. And God, I know for us, I love the image of a tapestry where if you look at the tapestry on the backside, it just looks like a mess. All these random threads that don't seem to go anywhere. There's no rhyme or reason or purpose. But when you turn it over, you see this beautiful work of art. And Lord, that is, that is what you do. And we just thank you that we can be a part of this process. We thank you that, God, you are trustworthy. And so even in the midst of our confusion, even in the midst of our trials, even in the midst of the challenging things that we face and go through the times where we don't understand what you're doing, Lord, we can trust that you are faithful and that you will work in and through our lives. And God, we thank you and we praise you for that. We come before you. Thank you that you are a God who is joy giver. And thank you, God, that when we set our eyes on you, you give us hope. And thank you for the gift of your son, And it's in his name we pray, amen.